You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 113. What's up, Mark? Jake, we've been so busy, and we apologize to our listeners. We haven't been regular lately in releasing the shows, and it's just because we've been all over the place. We came back from Canada. Um, you know, we're doing some other stuff, but we're going to try to get back to, to delivering shows on a regular basis. But we had a good time north of the border, didn't we? Yeah, it was a good time. It was, uh, Calgary's a cool city. You know, they say it's Houston of the north. Um, I think it definitely looked like Houston, just kind of driving around. Uh, oil and gas advertisements everywhere. Um, the people are extremely friendly. Extremely friendly. In fact, that, in fact some, we all were kind of wondering. Used to. <laughs> yeah, it's like, is something going on? But it's just, it's, it's, it's way Calgary is. And it's, um, if you don't know, Jake and I delivered a keynote at, at Geo Convention. We had a really good time, met some great people up there. Um, and, and, and you know, it, was, it was just nice to see the optimism in the room. Yeah, and, and a lot of really good feedback too. Yep. And you know what else, Jake? Besides us delivering What's keynotes, up? we have our own radio station. What? Oh, we do. So if you ever want to listen to us 24-7, click the link in the show notes. It's it's on repeat. I mean, who wouldn't want to listen to us 24-7, right? Yeah, um, not my wife, but maybe other people out there will. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of stuff like being on the road, we have to give a big shout-out to our on-the-road sponsors who allows us to travel and meet all of our people. So we have Total Land. They're the world's most advanced field land management system, literally the landman's virtual office. Big shout-out to them. This right there in Lafayette, Louisiana. And then Lee Heck Harrison, they're global experts in talent management. Jake, over 75% of the big oil and gas companies use Lee Heck, and Har- Lee Heck Harrison um, for leadership and workforce, workforce transformation. So big shout out to those two companies for allowing us to travel around and, and meet so many of our, our, our audience out there. And then if you have a trade association, a company event, a conference, a school, sales and marketing meeting, whatever, your gym, um, and you'd like Jake and I to come out and then deliver a keynote or have a conversation, let us know. We're happy to share the details. And Jake, I think we kind of need to jump in the news stories at this point. Let's do it. All right. All right, so there's been a lot of talk about the OPEC cuts being extended uh, to 2018, um, and there's there's kind of two sides of the story. So some people are saying that the U.S. shale is going to make a dent uh, in the, I guess, the price gains that you're getting from that agreement, and then there's the opposite side. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, the this is a good article that Jake found in Oil Price. The thing that they miss, and this is the thing a lot of people miss, is oil is not oil. There's different types of oil, different weights. And in order for oil to be turned into money, it has to be processed, which is typically called refining, right? And refining can turn oil anything from fuel to plastics to paint um, to petrochemicals to, to, to whatever. And so parts of the world have a different appetite for different types of crude. Uh, here in the U.S., we have a very strong appetite for very heavy, very complex crudes, which we don't produce in the U.S., whereas in Central and South America, they love the light, sweet crudes because it's easier to refine. So this is the part that, that, that this article that they, they didn't take into account. So yes, overall, net over net, we're the shell plays are producing producing more oil and gas, which is entering the global market. But there's still sub-markets in there for the heavier crudes that OPEC produces. Um, I, I think that... Um, you know, this is no secret. He might listen to the show. I think we're seeing this destabilization of OPEC. I think OPEC knows that. I think OPEC has seen it maybe even longer than I have, the potential there. So you're seeing OPEC do things like actually build refineries and petrochemicals to actually capture a different part of the value chain, which they traditionally haven't done. 
Um, but I, you know, I think Jake, we're in this long-term low crew price environment, regardless of what uh, OPEC does as far as production. Um, nobody wants to see another glut on the market, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I also don't see a shortage, which would drive prices up. So, you know, like I said, I think we're in this long-term low crude price environment. You know, anywhere between you know fifty and sixty dollars a barrel. So, do you think the U.S. is immune to an oil price crash this year? No, we're not. We're still vulnerable because we've we've yet to um, build the market share for our sweet crude that we produce, and we have the ability to produce so much more of it. Um, the other thing is, depending on what happens with our current administration, we our refineries may actually retrofit. There's a chance they may retrofit to actually process the crudes we produce here in, internally. If they do that, once that construction is completed, uh, we will pretty much be immune to the rest of the world's, you know, supply and demand prices. I don't see it happening. If it, it does happen, it, it won't happen for a while. So right now we're still vulnerable for that because we rely upon that heavy complex crude from the Middle East and from Canada and Venezuela. Um, now from a net point of view, as far as our industry, um, even if if we have another tank in the cycle, if we're able to export our crude, we still sell it, which will keep jobs. So it's it's just our, our world changing. What what worked, how it worked from an economic point of view traditionally in the U.S. and oil and gas has changed, and it's actually changing for the better. So this next article is talking about how um, just the cyclical nature of our industry is actually keeping oil and gas hiring down, and it's not automation. Um, so despite increases in oil and gas activity, um, like I said, there's just a lot of doubt that the employment sector will ever reach the highs of 2014 again. Yeah. And this article is from Forbes and it's, and once again, it's written, um, nothing against Forbes. I love the magazine. It's written for somebody that doesn't know the entire industry. So yes, especially the service companies right now, um, their employment levels are nowhere near what it was in 2014. Now they're hiring Jake we, and we, you and I both know that. And I still think that by the end of this year, there's going to be a shortage of people in the service companies on land in the U.S., which is going to then flip the the leverage right now. So right now, the operators have the leverage on the service companies. It can make them take low margin deals because the service companies just need to keep their people working. I think that that's going to flip in this year where all of a sudden there's going to be a shortage of service companies. Not shortage of service, but the, their ability to deliver projects, which then is going to give the service company leverage over the operators that's going to drive prices back up. But what you don't, they don't talk about in this article at all is the growth in jobs in, in petrochemicals and downstream in the U.S. So there's a, been a huge, I mean, enormous growth in that part of our industry in the U.S. because that part of the industry is growing like crazy. So, you know, if in, anybody out there that um, works in this industry and is worried about these cycles, you know, one of the piece of advice I can give you is learn and get exposed to other parts of the industry. Traditionally, if you work for an upstream service company, a Halliburton or Schlumberger or Baker Hughes, Weatherford, and you got laid off, you only looked within those service companies because that was the only world you knew. And what you didn't know is that the service companies that are servicing downstream are hiring like crazy. And your jobs, your skill set is probably transferable. Um, so, you know, learning the whole industry, you see it. Shoot. Sorry, audience, I clicked on something on my computer and started playing audio. Hopefully you didn't pick that up. Darn it. But, you know, it's it's. I don't see employment returning back in the traditional off-field roughneck jobs like it was in 2014. I actually don't see that happening ever, Jake. But we've talked about this before. We you know, we were at, at Accenture yesterday touring their innovation center, and we're talking about the jobs they're creating in oil and gas that didn't exist. I mean, they're taking people that have video game crafting experience and bringing them into the oil and gas industry that's that's a new job for our industry so there's new jobs coming in just you know 
keep your head up and, and, and be aware of what's going on. Be aware that the changes aren't bad, that the changes actually are good. But as far as the hands-on, boots-on-the-ground, roughneck numbers, I don't think we'll ever get back to what, where we were in 2014. And I think I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either. I think in 2014, um, having worked with ENPs during that time, I think they were just overstaffed. I think there was just too many people. I think they were running too inefficiently. And yeah, I think and they've kind of learned from their mistakes. They were they were running their business like like a teenager with a credit card. No, you know? you know you're exactly right. There was money being wasted everywhere, and they were hiring like crazy. And there was a an arms race for talent. So if you some somebody that understood. Um, you know, coil tube and services, and you should be making 80 or maybe 90,000 a year. The next company would offer you 110. The next company offer you 150. Pretty soon you're making twice as much as you should. And that was a service company's fault creating that. And I think you're right. I think they've learned during this downturn and they don't want to have that price war happen again. And, and I don't think it will. Yeah. I don't think 2014 should be the benchmark that we measure against. I think this year will actually set a new benchmark of, of how efficient companies can actually run and how lean they can actually run. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this year, I think 2017, especially here in, in North America, will be the new benchmark of, of talent, both in prices and efficiencies, right? Time on tool, that sort of stuff, but also the way that you effectively use new technologies to be able to keep those prices low. And, and you know, if you're listeners to the show, you know I've been talking about this forever, but it's like, finally, we're getting there. We've needed to be there for a long time. I think it's also playing a little bit off of the uh, the fears of automation, you know, kind of like the Industrial Revolution in the early 1900s uh, replaced a lot of jobs, especially in the factories. Um, and I think we'll see that in oil and gas as well, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, because New we're replacing the be created. Yeah, well, and only that, we're replacing jobs that are dangerous, right? Um, you know, yeah. the, the number of people that it takes on an actual drill site to actually run and, and put pipe together and build stands has dr declined dramatically, and that's not a bad thing. Um, that means the machines are doing the dangerous work so people don't get hurt. And I think that's a fantastic thing. And, and we're continuing to see more and more of that. You know, we were at National Oil Well during OTC. We we're talking to one of their guys. We Actually, it's on one of the podcasts um, about have, the, have this totally automated system for racking pipe. And somebody sits in the driller's cabin with a joystick looking at video camera and racks pipe. There's no people involved anymore. That's a good thing. And then you're taking that job, which was dangerous, and you're moving it. So you're not getting rid of a job. You're moving it to a place that's much safer and much easier for that guy to transfer his skill set so he can train other people. I, like you said, I think it's all a really good, good stuff. So the Trump administration is considering letting six companies test for oil and gas uh, off the Atlantic coast. Uh, this past Wednesday, the Interior Department uh, took the first step in potential drilling in the Atlantic Ocean, which would re reverse Obama administration policies, which rejected such applications. So kind of to dumb it down, uh, essentially what they're doing is they're allowing them to do seismic testing in the Atlantic. Yeah, and, and the environmental advocates are who've been opposing this forever or having a conniption fit because they're worried about the damage the seismic testing will do to wildlife. The truth is the sonic signal of the, the testing they're doing is mostly in the f ocean floor and the amount of, of noise that is basically released in the ocean is minimal. And it's, it's, it's only for a very, very, very short period of time. Now it's funny that the environmental advocates don't talk about the noise that the windmills create in the East coast, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, once again, it's people that don't understand science, making scientific, uh, having a scientific opinion. And what it really is, is an emotional opinion. This is not saying that we're going to drill offshore. This is just like what happened in the Arctic where we, the permits were released so that Shell could test to see if it was viable, which it wasn't in the Arctic, at least not now. And this is the same thing that's going on here. The uh, Bureau of, of Ocean Energy Management is going to allow these permits to go through so that these six companies can test just to see what the possibility is on the East Coast. Even if, if 
all this went was fast track and, and drilling was allowed and it looked like it was environmentally responsible and economically feasible, it would be years, Jake, probably a decade before they actually start drilling. But once again, this is our current administration looking at our capacity to produce uh, inexpensive, environmentally responsible energy so that we have what it takes to be able to compete with the rest of the world. This is a good thing. Let's just see what our our, our options are, you know, and, and for people to have a conniption fit around this, just get over it. I completely agree. I think it's good to it's good to lay out your options and at least see. I mean, there, there's no no telling that if there will actually be drilling in the Atlantic or not. But at least, you know, hey, we've banned it for the last three decades. Let's challenge that and see. You know, is there a great opportunity for us in the Atlantic? Yeah, and it's you know we do it very well in the Gulf of Mexico. We actually, no matter what California says, we do it very well in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> you know, we do it in Alaska. We do it all over the world. The East Coast is no different. Actually, in a lot of ways, compared to the rest of the world, the East Coast is a lot easier place to drill environmentally responsible. So let's just see where this thing goes. It's it's good stuff. It's good stuff for the country and for the people that live here. So this next article, uh, U.S. shale explorers are boosting drilling budgets 10 times faster than the rest of the world to harvest fields that register fat profits, even with the recent drop in oil prices. Yeah, so it's um, this is a great article that Jake found. Um, it's, it's, has, it's in Bloomberg, and it's... Um, it's showing that the the shale producers in the U.S. realize the potential that's coming in the future, and so they're they're spending money, and they're spending money to get ahead of their competitors. Well, that money that's being spent not only does it give them leases and it gives them equipment to drill, but it's jobs, it's prosperity, in a part of the industry that, for, for quite frankly, Jake, for the last two two and a half years has been really hurting. So um, th- this is good. This is good that the companies are spending money. They're hiring people again. They're building infrastructure. Um, you know, anytime you have, you know, $84 billion worth of, of cash basically be dumped into the U.S. economy, it's good for everybody. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I mean, there's some good, there's some good nuggets of information here, right? So it's showing how the independents are, are actually spending a lot of money. That's a good thing. That means there's multiple companies instead of one or two or three big companies spending money. Um, and it's also showing how the, that they're um, looking at doing things differently, right? They're looking at helping build the infrastructure, even though they're competitors together, so that they can continue to make money at a lower crude price. Um, like I said, long-term wide, this is jobs, this is prosperity, this is environmental responsibility. And that's not counting all of the huge uh, majors out there that are also pushing up their budgets in the shell plays. And if, you know, I think somebody called this last November and when they did their oil and gas predictions for 2017, that land rules. And this is just a perfect example that land rules. I think one of the biggest metrics that sticks out to me is the talking about EOG and Pioneer are getting 70% returns on first quarter prices in the Permian. Uh, If you're getting 70% returns, why would you awesome. double down or just spend right. just a ton of money in that area? Right. You know? Right. It makes sense. I mean, it's just awesome. It's prosperity, like I said. All right. Up next, uh, tempers flare Thursday amongst budget talks um, between lawmakers who are deeply divided on whether to increase taxes on the oil and gas industry. Um, and this is specific to Oklahoma. Yeah, this is this. I have to laugh at this. Um, so, so basically the Democrats, um, were convinced that the Republicans had agreed to 5% uh, tax on all new wells in exchange for the democratic support of a dollar 50, a pack increase in taxes on cigarettes. So somehow they managed to tie oil and gas production to cigarettes. <laughs> only, only politicians could pull out something like this. 
Um, and the problem here, Jake, is and it's it's it's, a, it's not an easy fix. It's not black and white. It's a lot of gray. So basically, Oklahoma has a deficit of almost nine hundred million dollars because of the low crude price environment. A lot of their revenue that they were dependent on came from the oil and gas industry, who's stopped drilling in Oklahoma. And, and don't send me any hate mail. I know they haven't stopped drilling, but the amount of drilling has has declined dramatically. But it's starting to pick back up. So if you're a politician in Oklahoma, you have two problems. One is you have a $900 million, and it's actually $878 million budget shortfall you have to try to figure out. And so the knee-jerk reaction is to place a tax on the, what's coming back, which is the drilling of wells. The problem with that, though, is then you increase the cost of operation for the operators who then may not be able to make money, then they won't drill the well. So a longer-term approach to this would be not to tax the oil and gas uh, production any more than being taxed right now so that it has a uh, an easy ramp to come back, which will create jobs, which will create prosperity, which will eventually put the money back into the account for the state of Oklahoma. But the problem is, how do you overcome that deficit? Oklahoma is unlike Texas. So Texas has something called a rainy day fund. It's basically a savings account. So Texas says, you know what? We don't know what the future is going to bring, so we're going to save this money. Oklahoma doesn't have that. So they have to come up with $878 If this was in Texas, the lawmakers would just agree to pull that out of the rainy day fund. So, um, you know, this is a hard one to call. Like I said, there's no black or white, but I think long-term-wise, taxing the operators is the wrong way to do it. Maybe there's some, you know, third third party, third way to do this that maybe nobody's thought of. Maybe there's something else they can cut for a short amount of time. Like, hey, maybe uh, all the traveling that the state legislature does, maybe you could cut that for six months and let the oil and gas industry come back and to make that up. But, you know, there's some there's some real smart politicians in Oklahoma trying to do this the right way. And then, unfortunately, there's some politicians that um, are just trying to create a ruckus around this. And so, you know, hopefully, you want, for to, pe- you want to incentivize drilling in Oklahoma. And the best way to do that is to keep the taxes low. If you just jack up the taxes, it's not going to attract any, any operators to actually come in and, and drill any new prospects. Yeah. And, and if this is, a, this is a huge part of their income every year, and you, you don't want to threaten that. So, you know, um, hopefully the, the, the lawmakers with the common sense, uh, you know, come out ahead on this and they're able to figure this thing out. Um, and hopefully the, the lawmakers that are just creating a mess, especially on social media, get, you know, pushed down, <laughs> get, you know, cause the, the people of Oklahoma are the only ones that are going to suffer regardless of how this thing comes out are also the only ones that are going to prosper from this. So this next article is from fuel fix. It's diving into a lot of the permian activity, which we've talked about plenty of times over the last I don't know, 10 episodes. Um, so costs per well in the Permian are projected to rise more than 15% this year. Yeah, and this is nothing that if you listen is new to you. We've talked about this for a long time. I've talked about how a lot of the cost savings that the operators have talked about during this downturn aren't real. What they are are the service companies sucking it up and taking low or no margin deals just to keep their people working. And I think that's going to change. Here's a good article saying that we look like we got this one right too, that 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 by the end of the year, um, it's going to flip around and the, there's going to be a shortage of people, parts, and pumps uh, on land in North America. And the service companies are going to have the leverage again, which they need to. They've they've Those guys have really been hurting. I mean, the operators have hurting as well, but the service companies really have been, have been, been hurting bad. So, um, you know, that, that rise is really the market rebalancing itself, basically supply and demand, uh, 101. Um, but even though that you get that 15% increase, we're still going to be okay at the 50 to $60 a barrel because we've driven some real efficiencies in other places. And as we go through time, we're going to drive even more efficiencies. I mean, I don't want to see it at $40 a barrel, but Jake, if, if, if this trend continues and using new technology and new processes, in another five years, 
even at $40, $35 or $40 a barrel, people still be able to make money, Um, which I don't want to see it go there, but that's kind of a nice comforting thought to know that we don't need $80 a barrel anymore to make money. Yeah, exactly. So while we're on the topic of the Permian, um, as crew production is obviously increasing and a lot of activity in the Permian, uh, the infrastructure obviously has to increase as well. Um, So this nice article is diving into how a bunch of midstream uh, companies are actually beefing up their infrastructure in the Permian to actually handle the demand. Yeah. And, and this, again, once again, is companies that are they're partnering together and they're doing a lot of stuff. So a lot of people don't understand that just because you can produce oil at a well, it, you're making zero money at that point. You have to be able to bring it to market. If you can't bring it to market, you've, you, you have no income. And so one of the safest and cheapest way to move crude and gas around is in a pipeline. But there's another part of this that, that companies that people may not realize is that during the fracking process, a lot of water needs to be moved around. And so by in a lot of places uh, that's being done by truck, which is inefficient and not super responsible to the environment by building these pipelines to move both produced water and fresh water around you now have lowered the cost of using that water and made it much more environmentally responsible which means that you can then come in and do stuff like um, water reclamation where you can reuse that water over and over and over again because you have the infrastructure to move around which keeps price low um, so, so this is just showing the maturity of the infrastructure of the midstream part of the industry going on in the Permian, which once again, Jake, is going to lower cost, increase environmental responsibility. And then these pipelines don't build themselves, right? So these are jobs. These are jobs from parts of the country like the Permian where, you know, they could use them. And so, you know, building these, these, this infrastructure is creating jobs. It's making things more responsible. It's lowering costs. And, and once again, it's just showing the maturity of, of how we do stuff in the U.S. This is one of the things, Jake, that the rest of the world doesn't have, which is why even though they still have the same shale geology that we have, and they're starting to figure out how to tap into it, without the infrastructure we have, they can't move stuff around economically. So it doesn't make sense. Now, we think this is going to change as we go through time. We think the rest of the world is going to slowly develop this infrastructure. But right now, the U.S. has the most robust infrastructure uh, for this type of stuff in the world. So no podcast would be complete without us talking about technology, right? Nope. Uh, so obviously we were talking about, you know, efficiency is the name of the game. It's the biggest business driver uh, looking forward uh, across the industry. So I ran across this article that was talking about a company called Exa Corporation, uh, recently signed a multi-year deal with BP uh, for their digital rock permeability software. So why is that important? Um, I think it's pretty cool because it's the first predictive computational solver for relative perme- permeability. Um, and that, apparently that's been a goal that's been a long elusive Uh, for the oil and gas industry. So they're using digital scans that apparently are a lot faster uh, than traditional laboratory testing. And after kind of looking into the company, uh, I guess they're new to oil and gas. They're outsiders. I think they're from Silicon Valley somewhere. Um, So I think this is a cool example of how industry outsiders can come into this space um, and solve an age-old problem. Yeah, and you know what's cool about this? I didn't know you were going to put this uh, article in there. I actually know these guys. Um, So... um, Big shout out to Andrew Fager. He's the principal engineer with Exacta, uh, and you're right. They're they're outside the industry. This is just a perfect example, Jake, um, of companies, especially technology companies, seeing the opportunity that you and I talk about all the time, and then bringing their new technology to the industry and being successful at it. And then because they're successful at it, not only does it support their company, so their company can grow and they can pay their people and all that sort of stuff, but we're bringing new processes to our industry, which is lower in cost. I, I mean, this is just like this is like the perfect you know, marriage of somebody from outside the, the oil and gas industry and the oil and gas industry being open to new ideas and new technology. So um, for our listeners out there, one of the podcasts that we're working to bring on board is oil and gas technology podcast. We're, we're very close to launching that one. Uh, when we do launch that, this is one of the companies that we're going to interview first just because they have such a great story. But very good find, Jake. 
Up next, let's talk a little bit about some mergers and acquisitions going on in the space. Uh, Dallas-based Energy Transfer Partners uh, will soon finalize a merger with their sibling, Sunoco Logistics Partners. Um, both of these companies are, are currently owned by uh, Energy Transfer Equity. Um, so it's more so of a consolidation rather than an actual merger. But the combined company will create a $75 billion behemoth. Yeah, and you know what they're doing, Jake? So this is this is the typical when a market starts getting saturated, you have mergers and acquisitions to gain market share and might, right? You have leverage over the stuff that you buy. So they're going head to head with the big guys, right? Um, Enterprise Product Partners, uh, Kinder Morgan, uh, DCP, uh, TransCanada in some respect. So, um, you know, we expected this, we expect actually more of this in the midstream um, um, part of our industry. Um, and once again, when you have these big mar mergers like this, it then allows these big companies, big midstream companies to offer lower costs to move crude or natural gas around because they have more customers and more reach, which then allows the operators to make money at a lower, lower crude price environment. The other thing that people don't talk about this, that don't quite understand this, is also allows us to build the infrastructure very inexpensively that supplies the natural gas to all the ethylene crackers that are being built in the U.S. to produce um, all the the plastics and, and uh, byproducts that you can make from natural gas. Now, all that stuff is, is going out to help the rest of the world. It's not, we don't need any more ethylene in the U.S., but the rest of the world needs it, which once again, so we're taking our expertise, our capital investment, and our natural resources, and we're helping the rest of the world pull out of poverty. So um, this is a, you know, a good article on the, the, the mergers and acquisitions, but it also is a bit of a bigger story. This is going to lead, like I said, to a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world having a better life um, because we're able to deliver stuff like plastics to them at a cheap price. So Dow Chemical Company and DuPont are actually merging. So these are two just massive companies that have been around for a long time, uh, are actually planning to merge and then split into three separate companies focused on agriculture, agricultural, eh, agriculture, specialty chemicals and materials yeah so th these are right two huge petrochemical companies i mean there's no two bigger on the planet and they're merging and what they could do is when they merge they could split up parts of their business that are not as profitable and sell them off um it's it's i didn't see this coming but it makes total fiscal sense um the, the petrochemical part of their business is growing like crazy. Their agriculture business is actually pretty good too. Um, but if you spin that off, you allow the petrochemical to increase in value and valuation, which then for the shareholders is a good thing. So, um, you know, one of the things that they don't, I don't know if they talk about, but most of their investment globally is actually going to be here in the U.S. Um, so, you know, once again, petrochemicals rule, petrochemicals growing like crazy. Here's two big companies that see that, that are orchestrating their business in their, in their CapEx to actually invest back here in the U.S. because it makes the most sense because we have the cheapest feedstock and also the cheapest transportation costs because we have deep water ports on every coast. Um, so this is this is a good thing, um, but it's whoever would have thought that that Dow and Dupont would would merge. And, and like I said, it makes total fiscal sense. But I didn't see this one coming. So let's dive into what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, Venezuela, I'm sure a lot of people have seen on the news, um, has been crippled by protests since last March. Um, there's been more than three dozen people uh, that have been killed over the past few months, and it seems like things are just getting worse. Um, so why are we talking about this? Well. Inflation has ballooned up 720% this year. Uh, I want to stop you right there, Jake. 
I want you to say that number again. Inflation is, is how much this year in Venezuela? 720%. You can't so, live with that type of inflation rate. No, keep going. So I keep seeing stuff on Facebook about, you know, just people are just absolutely starving. They can't afford food. Um, so when your people can't afford food, obviously oil production is just completely tanking. And so um, their entire, I guess, oil market there in Venezuela um, is, is right there on the brink of collapse. And it's only just a matter of time at this point. Yeah, and we've been talking about this for years. We've been talking about how this low crude price environment is going to kill the Venezuelan economy, which is going to cause the people to overthrow the government. And unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, we got it right. I mean, I hate to see anybody suffer, um, but that's where it's going. And until they overthrow the government and and bring in um, democracy and allow the free market to help them, this is where they are. But Jake, it was so bad that even last year they were trading crude oil from rice and beans to just try to feed their people. And now they can't even feed their people. Uh, One of the things in this article, and this article is actually an oil price, is they're talking about has the population as a whole have lost weight and they're not dieting. They're starving. There's enough food to go around. And Venezuela, you know, just 10 years ago had money everywhere, right? It's a socialist government. They had a lot of good education, but because the leader in Venezuela didn't do the right things, this is what happened. And they kicked out all the majors. So they basically took field personnel that were, that were field technicians and now they're, they're management in their, in, in their oil and gas companies, which is not good. They don't have the engineering or the management expertise. Um, there's a lot of corruption, bribery. Um, there's a lot of government, um, uh, intervention into the the cash flows so the governments have basically taken money stuff in their pockets and unfortunately this is the end result hopefully for the venezuelan people they hurry up overthrow the government uh, put some democracy in place because they have a lot of potential i mean not just you know they produce that heavy crude which we love but not just that it's um you know that's a tourism mecca and and nobody's going there to tourism anymore because they can't trust their, their safety so um you know hopefully things happen quickly so the people there don't suffer as much um, but there needs to be change, and it looks like it's happening literally right underneath our feet right now. So let's shift our focus over to Iran. A conservative win at the polls in Iran could possibly set into motion a response from Washington that puts billions of dollars of Asian and European oil money at risk. Yeah, so so this is this is an interesting, scary place. Um, and I don't want to go deep in the geopolitics either of, of the Middle East or actually of the U.S., um, but, but now Iran's back in the, in the, in the, in the oil market, right? And we let them back in because we brokered a deal over their nuclear program. And, and whether that was the right thing to do, I originally said it was. And after watching this for a while, I think I was wrong. I think that was probably the wrong thing for us to do. In, in the moment, I thought it was great um, because, I mean, you know this, Jake, um, but the U.S. has a really strong history of having people that hate our guts and we make them our best friends in the world. You know, we've had a couple of world wars and now those, those countries are like our best buds. We're good at that. And I thought that's what was going to happen here. Unfortunately, it looks like I'm, I'm just I'm just wrong. And so, um, you know, the fact that Iran's reentered the global market, it's, it's starting to um, allow them to be the rival of, of some of the more sane countries out there. And so I don't know what's going to happen with this. It's um, a lot of it depends on, on what their leaders are going to do. I know that our current administration is probably going to take a very hard stance, which I now think is probably the right thing to do. Um, but the problem is, like you brought up, is there's in this in this market, when we allowed the, the oil production to go back online, it was a lot of potential because they have a ton of oil. They just don't have the infrastructure because of war has destroyed it to move it. So you had a bunch of investment companies from the U.S. and, and Asia and European put pump money into that, seeing the potential return of their investment. And if the U.S. and our allies crack down on this, they're, they're basically going to lose a big part of their investment. Uh, and, and I know that our administration is looking at this not just from a 
uh, a military point of view, not just from a terrorism point of view, but from a social economic point of view. So hopefully, you know, our government makes some right decisions that ultimately helps the Iranian people. So this next article is a little bit more upbeat. Um, China has successfully extracted gas from gas hydrates, also known as fire ice or flammable ice, in the northern part of the South China Sea. Yeah, so you know, if you've listened to the show, I'm always talking about how we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world. Here's a hydrocarbon source that nobody's been able to tack into, and it's all over the world. It's literally sitting on the ocean floor in deep water. It's um, it's crystallized ice that only exists at those pressures and those temperatures, which inside that ice is basically water and, and methane, which is a big component of natural gas. So if China is able to effectively, safely, environmental responsibility, and economically re- um pull gas out of these gas hydrates, that is huge. <laughs> Once again, you're talking about even more hydrocarbons available for our world to use. I mean, just billions and billions and billions of cubic feet because um, uh, this methylene hydrate is all over the world. Every place there's deep water in the world, there's there's this this crystalline structure. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, um, I hope this is legit. I hope the numbers add up. I'm a little suspect because it came from China. But the thing that's interesting is that um, Japan's actually looking at this as well. And if Japan's able to duplicate what China did, then that makes it legit. Um, so, uh, you know, th- 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 this is really cool. This is just showing how another technologies allow us to tack into another source of hydrocarbons that up until now you couldn't tap into. And that about wraps it up for the stories. Cool. And so Jake, I hope you guys enjoyed it. We were trying to be a little bit more, I guess, balanced across the industry, trying to put a little bit more midstream, a little bit more downstream. Uh, and a little bit more stuff outside the U.S. in there. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Yeah, and Jake, like I was telling you, we've gotten a lot of input from some of our listeners that they would like a more rounded approach. And I think we did it well with this this show. If you agree with us, if you like this, uh, reach out to us. You know, hit us up on Twitter or leave a comment or a review or whatever and let us know that we're, we're back on track with this because we're trying to make sure that you're happy with, with the stuff we produce. And speaking of being happy with the stuff we produce, we have a winner, don't we, Jake? Yes, we do. Sylvan Galawa. Uh, he's a third engineer at Transocean. You are the winner this week, so congratulations. Yep. Mark, so if somebody wants to win theirs, where do they go? This is really easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. See official site for rules and details. And the rig count this week, uh, like we said, we're going off the drilling info's U.S. rig count is up. 2% from the previous week to 988. So we're just on the brink of having 1,000 rigs online here in the U.S. Yep, yep. I'm not going to rub it in that I said 1,300 at the beginning of the year. Let's yeah. see where it goes. <laughs> uh, but this is awesome. That, that steady growth is what we want, right? We don't want to see a 30% increase because that's un- unsustainable, and we don't want to see zero. This 1% or 2 or 3% is perfect, and we're staying on track. Speaking of staying on track, you know, Jake and I talk about all these events that we go to. Um, we're there uh, to make sure that we know what's going on. We literally keeping our finger on the pulse of the oil and gas industry. But if you want to go to them as well, we have a free monthly newsletter. Um, it's, uh, Jake put a link in the show notes. Basically, I take all the oil and gas events that are worth adorning. I put them in one place and I put them in your email uh, in your inbox once a month. We got a couple things coming up. We had the uh, SPRE asset evaluation optimization. This is a financial group uh, around oil and gas here in Houston. Uh, JD runs this. If you're if you're in that oil and gas finance world, go check it out. It's Thursday, May 26. They have a presentation. Uh, it's all around um, you know the decisions that operators need to make about reducing costs and, and maintaining profitability. And so uh, it's it's kind of a, a networking group, combination learning group, are all around. Uh, 
of finance in oil and gas. And then we, Jake, we have the Data-Driven Production Conference, which is right up both our alleys, uh, June 6th and 7th here in Houston. We'll put a link up in the show notes. Uh, if you actually uh, go to my blog, modalpoint.com forward slash blog, and there's a couple of videos we sh- uh, did interviewing some of the people there. We have a discount code, which Jake, I'll actually get for you to put here too, but it allows you to get $400 off, which is huge for this conference. But we'll be there as press. Uh, this is a perfect intersection of technology and, and what's happening in upstream um, and then if you like the show and you have questions, we do our first Friday Q&A, except for May, because Jake, you and I forgot to do the May <laughs> first Friday Q&A. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, it's both of our fault. Um, but we are doing one in June, promise. And we'll try to make sure we don't skip them anymore. So if you have any questions, uh, Jake has a link in the show note, but basically you can go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, submit your question. And if we read it on the air, you get a big shout out. Then... We need reviews. Um, I know we got a bunch of them. Thank you for everybody that's given us a review. Uh, we still need more. If you can take the one or two minutes, go to iTunes, leave us a review. Um, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Jake, do we have any new reviews you want to read? Uh, let's see. Here's one uh, from C. Baldwin. Always informative, five-star review. Great podcast. I listen mostly during my commute, and it's a great way to to uh, abreast, stay abreast of the latest uh, trends in the oil and gas industry. Uh, another one from... Uh, D.L. Goldby, thanks, five stars. Uh, for those of us, for those of us who are new to the industry, I mean, really new, just moved to Texas, new. I applaud you guys for an education in oil and gas. I've learned so much about the industry and can now apply my research skills to a whole new, interesting, and exciting field that I knew nothing about prior to moving here. You guys, plus the Aggies in the industry, have given me a quick, <laughs> down and dirty education from top to bottom. Um, from technology to big data to finance to marketing to startups, land to retail, your podcast directly affects me how and what I teach. And most importantly, and thankfully, the placements my students are landing when they graduate. To be clear, you're having an impact on great students, getting great jobs at great companies. Keep up the good work. Professor at a small school and college station. Man, that's awesome. That, that feels good, right? We're helping these kids get jobs in our industry. What a great review. Thank you so much. Um. So um, we have a couple of groups out there. So we have uh, Oil & Gas Global Network, which is the parent of this podcast and all the, pa- the podcasts. We have an OGG and Twitter, which Jake is growing like crazy. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, people are paying attention to what we have to say for some reason. And all the podcasts live in OGG. And we also have an OGG and uh, Facebook group. There's an OGG and uh, LinkedIn group. The LinkedIn group is a great place you haven't joined yet where you can get uh, input from your peers from different parts of the industry, uh, have conversations, conversations. Uh, uh, get questions answered so we're, we're all over social come join us uh, we, we want you to be part of this and we're going places um, then if you want uh, more information if you want to know about stuff that jake and i are doing on this show first just go to oilandgasthisweek.com give us your email address we won't spam you and when we have anything new the first place it will be announced will be on that email list on our website and then the second place will be on the oggn uh, linkedin group um, busy week busy month for us uh, this is a good show um, anything else we need to talk about jake think that about wraps it up. All right, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.